Amen. Well, this morning, I have the, uh, the pleasure of having uh, Abram McWhorters uh, preach to us this morning. Abram McWhorters is a pastoral resident at Christ Redeemer Church. Christ Redeemer Church, you uh, might remember, I've mentioned them before, I, I think. Uh, they are uh, in Hanover, New Hampshire, a part of uh, the NETS network. NETS is focused on church planting and church revitalization, specifically in New England for the glory of God and to see a revival in New England, a recovery of the gospel. And uh, I did an internship with NETS, and, uh, and uh, our church is a part of this network as well, and so is Christ Redeemer Church. Uh, so Abram first uh, moved to Upper Valley as a student where he played football and graduated with a government degree from Dartmouth. And after undergrad, he uh, interned at Christ Redeemer Church for two years and working with youth and college students. And in the fall of 2019, he moved to Atlanta to go to seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary, seminary which is an excellent seminary, uh, to work towards an MDiv. And he's returned to Christ Redeemer Church and finishing his degree remotely while being a resident at Christ Redeemer, learning on just what it means to be a pastor. So uh, it is a joy just to, to have you uh, come and preach to us, brother, and we look forward to, to hearing the word. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, like Pastor Demi said, my name is Abram, and I am excited to be here with you all. This is my first time uh, out here to your church, but it's fun to have the Nets connection and to have met Demi before in some of our uh, meetings, and then just to come and, and be and worship with you all and, and preach this morning. Uh, like you said, I'm visiting from Christ Redeemer Church, but I originally hail from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, and part of the fun thing about being away from home is you get to experience new things and new places and new people, and that's, that's part of the experience that I get this morning. But part of the hard part about being away from home uh, for so long is you start to miss family. Like, people start to grow older, and people have all these cool experiences uh, back home that you kind of miss. You have to make up for on social media and things like that. Uh, I have a great family who I miss uh, a lot. I have an amazing mother who sacrificed a lot uh, for me and, I, and my two sisters, uh, so much so that we got to watch her finish her undergraduate degree uh, this year in May. She graduated from Southern New Hampshire University, and so we all got to go to Manchester and watch her walk, which, is, which was super sweet. I have an awesome dad who I want to be like uh, when I grow up, and I also have two sisters uh, who are average, I guess I'll say. Uh, they, they're like cool people, and they got great personalities, and they're beautiful people. They're doing great things in life. Uh, but every time I ask them for money, to send me money, they don't seem to have it for me. Uh, and so that's why I say they're, they're, they're kind of average. Uh, but uh, they just moved, so they were actually living in Tulsa, Oklahoma for uh, ever. <laughs> and then they just moved to Waltham, Massachusetts, where my younger sister will begin grad school. My older sister uh, will live and work with her. And they're actually both here this morning uh, with me. And uh, this is a super sweet moment for me because I, it's actually the first time in five years uh, since I started ministry that anyone in my family has been able to to come and be with me in church and to see me preach. And so this is a super sweet moment for me, so thank you all for inviting me to come out. That was a super short trip for them to come up, and so uh, thanks for just sharing this with me. If you guys see them, uh, don't be afraid to say hello and chide them and tell them to send me money, because uh, that's what I need. They had two requests of me this morning, is to make my sermon good and to not tell stories about them, and I only plan to honor one of those requests this morning. 
But before we jump into our sermon, let me read our passage this morning. Our passage comes from Psalm chapter 113. Psalm 113. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there to it, uh, but we will also have it on the screen here for you. Again, Psalm 113 says this, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Well, uh, like I said, my sisters are here, and we're all from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we actually grew up in a pretty traditional black Baptist church on the, on the north side of Tulsa. And I have a lot of fond memories from that church, actually. It's a very high-energy church. Service could last anywhere from like an hour and a half to like four or five hours, depending on just kind of how the spirit moved and how excited people were during service. Sometimes we get to singing so loud And they would be playing the instruments so hard that like a fuse would blow and the electricity in the church would turn off and it wouldn't spook anybody. Actually, it would like charge everybody all the more to be like, let's continue to praise God. And so this guy would start banging on the drums still and people would continue to sing until the lights miraculously or whoever ran to the back to uh, reset the box would miraculously turn back on and we'd we'd keep going. And... uh, one of the staples in our church growing up was a relative of ours, uh, our cousin Tempe. Now, she was a cousin, but she was in her late 60s, maybe 70s when we were kids, and so she's like one of those removed cousins, four or five, I don't know how many times you remove a cousin until uh, it's appropriate, but she was our cousin, and I didn't know much about her. But I did know that every Sunday, if she heard a good prayer or a good song or a good sermon, she would amen with everybody else in the congregation, and then when she sat down in her seat, she wouldn't be able to let it go. And so as the congregation quieted down, she would still be thinking about what had just been prayed or saying or preached, and she would say, I thank you. And she would say it loud enough for, for people to hear. And, and when it was quiet, and, and someone would be, would be up trying to transition to the next part of the service, and she would just be in her seat, and she would say, I thank you. And that one time usually wasn't good enough to her to really convey what she was feeling at the moment, so she would say it again. She would say, I thank you. And if what she was thinking about was really good to her, she could go on for minutes after the prayer or after the song or the sermon is over, and she would keep saying, I thank you, Father. Even as church ended and people were leaving, there were times where she would still be in her seat going on and on saying, I thank you, Father. And as a kid, it really never made sense to me why she would keep going on like that, right? For me, I didn't really know what she had to be so thankful for week in and week out. I mean, she wasn't really in great health. You know, for as long as I remember her, she walked with a cane or a walker, and she was always a little bit bent over. She didn't seem to have a lot of money. I mean, the car that she rode in or or drove was barely hanging on as much as mine, barely hung on on my trip from Hanover up to Portsmouth. She didn't have a ton of influence in our church or our city. And so how was she able to come in week in and week out and have something to praise God for? What was she celebrating? What was she thanking God for? And not just when the congregation was thanking God or praising God together, but even as she sat down in the privacy of her own seat without prompting. Why could she sit there week in and week out 
and say, I thank you. Well, that heart of praise is, is the central theme of our psalm this morning. And, and, I, and this is a helpful psalm because it, it doesn't just give us the command to praise as if all we need is a reminder to praise God, but it gives us the proper perspective for our praise. I believe it's actually what my cousin Timpy knew that I didn't know as a kid at the time. You see, in the middle of this psalm, in verse 5, is a central question that the psalmist is wanting us to consider. And that central question, again, found in verse 5, is this, who is like the Lord our God? And as we consider the answer to that question, I believe we'll get the perspective and the motivation that we need to live out the command that we find, prompted or unprompted. And so I'm going to look at three things this morning as we look through Psalm 113. I'm going to look at God's greatness, God's care, and our proper response. Again, God's greatness, God's care, and our proper response. So we're actually going to start in verse 4, and then we're going to come back around to the first three verses with the command to praise. So let's talk about God's greatness. This is the first aspect that the psalmist calls us to consider as we think about who is like the Lord, our God. The psalmist starts to describe God's greatness by saying that he is high above all the nations and his glory above the heavens. And I think this morning, as we come to church, whether you're seeking God or whether you know God, the God that you are searching for, the God that you seek to put your hope in, we want a God like that. We want a God who is powerful and who is large, who's able to handle any situation he comes across. But even if we have this high view of God, we still often underestimate how how great God actually is, and and that manifests itself in our praise. I mean, consider the times where we direct our praise to places other than God. It could be a praise to our money or our jobs, our status, our reputation, our family or our works. When we give the praise that we owe God over to these other things, we function as if they do God's job just as well as he does. In a sense, when we give God's praise over to these other things, we're operating as if God is just first among equals. When we come in here, we're called to praise him, but when we go out there, these other things, these, our jobs, our money, our, our, our families, our communities, do the job just as well as he does. So we may say that God is our provider, but when we spend more time glorifying over or stressing over our jobs and the salaries that they bring, we function as if our job is our provider. We may say that God is the one who gives us our worth and identity, but when we so desperately seek after other people's approval, that we're willing to conform to whoever they want us to be, we function as if our community defines our worth and our identity. We may even say that the grace of God, realizing the sacrifice of Christ, is the source of our salvation. But when we spend more time commending our own good works and the way that we serve in our church or our community, we function as if it's our good works that are the things that function just as well as God does. You see, or just consider the times we don't praise God altogether when we withhold God's praise, we're functioning as if the things causing maybe the anxiety or the grief or the unbelief that causes us to withhold that praise, we function as if they are close enough to God that they might reach up, grab him, given the right conditions that they might pull him off of his throne. And there are no shortage of things that come to steal our praise in this way, right? I mean, anxiety or grief, sickness in our own bodies, the death of our loved ones, troubles in our marriage, troubles in our finances, political turmoil, even our own sin. I mean, I I remember countless times that I walked into church on a Sunday morning unwilling to praise God because because I was marinating in my own sin, what I had done the day before, the week before, the night before. 
See, though we may claim that God is great, oftentimes in life, either we function like he is first among equals, or that he is just a figurehead with really no real power over the things that happen in our lives. And it manifests itself in our lack of praise. But what we forget is that God is not just crouched on his throne just above the world's problems. God is above all the nations, and his glory is higher than the heavens. See, before there was a heavens, there was God. Before there was an earth, there was God. Before our job, our money, our communities, and our good deeds, there was God. Before the things that cause our anxiety and our worry and our unbelief, there was God. Before you and I were here, there, were, there was God. And before you and, and, and my sin entered the world, there was God. And all of them, all these things, needed God's permission to enter the world, and none of them will outlast him. See, though his glory is displayed in the heavens, it isn't dependent on them. And though he calls his people to praise, he's not even dependent on our obedience to get his glory. He can work through a remnant as easily as a country of believers. The Bible says that even if we don't praise him, the rocks would cry out in our place. See, God is not without a witness anywhere on earth because his greatness is always on display. You can see it in the beauty of his creation and the care for his people. He is high above all the nations in his glory above the heavens. And not only is he higher than the nations in the heavens, but, but look in verse 5, it says that he is seated there. And this is really a major concept in the psalm that we need to, to understand because we'll actually come back around to it in the latter verses. You see, when the psalmist speaks of God being seated on high, he's, he's talking about God's position and his status and his function. What about God's position? Well, with God being seated on high, his position is sedentary. He's not moving. See, being God is not a balancing act for God. He's not struggling to hold the world together with sort of his plans on one end and, and your problems on the other. So he's not walking this tightrope trying to be God. See, being God for him is as easy as sitting in the chair that you're sitting in now. He's seated. It also speaks to his status as powerful and kingly. You see, all the thrones in those days, would, would have been, you would have had to look up as you come into the throne room. There would have been steps, and the king would have been seated on high. Well, if God is seated higher than the nations, and his glory above the heavens, being the only one as high as he is, it means that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And he functions from that place. He's seated there, which means that he's supposed to be there. That's where he works from. So he hears all and he sees all perfectly fine. His perspective is not limited. He's not troubled by the same mountains and valleys that we are because he's seated on high. No matter what happens in heaven or on earth, God sits on high. And who is like the Lord, our God? This is, this is unique to the God of the Bible. See, all the things that we talked about that can come to distract or steal God's praise are dependent on the nations and the heavens. Our jobs are dependent on the economy running well. Our communities are dependent on its fellow members working together. Even the leaders of our church aren't guaranteed another breath in their bodies. See, the only character who was before the nations in the heavens is God, and so he alone is the only one who sits above them. And this is good news, because God's greatness is, is paired with this next aspect that the psalmist calls us to consider, which is God's care. So not only is, God's, is God great, but he also cares. So in verse 6, the psalmist calls us to consider God's care as he says, in the midst of being seated on high, God looks 
slow. See, though God's not able to be disturbed or pulled down by anything that's going on below him, he's still interested on what's going on below him. His gaze is on the creation and the people that he's made. And again, I think if we're here this morning at church and we're thinking about a God who we know or want to know, want to believe in, we want a God like that, who cares for us and is concerned about us and wants to move towards us. But even if we have a a God in our mind who is concerned about us, I think oftentimes our view of God's care for us can be too small too, right? I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I tend to believe like he's a CEO with a corner office that's like on the hundredth floor. And and sure, he looks down on the city that's below him, but everything kind of looks like ants and these specks just moving around. Or maybe he's this impartial judge that's looking to do no more or less than to balance the scales of justice. Or maybe he's like a busy parent who generally knows where all his kids are and generally knows what they're doing or supposed to be doing, but he's, he's devoted to other matters. He's too devoted to them to be concerned about the particulars of their moment. I personally enjoy uh, working with kids. I, I got to work with the youth of our church in the first stint, and I just love hanging with the kids in our church. And I, I, think, I think I have a great capacity for kids. I think I can hang with them all day. Part of it is because I'm a kid at heart, and one of the kids in our church who is near and dear to me is one of the daughters of my friend Chris Aldino. He's our executive pastor in Hanover. Her name is Alma. She is six now. And one of the things that me and Alma do occasionally, she'll bug her parents to see if I can take her to McDonald's. And so uh, sometimes I say yes, sometimes I say no. <laughs> but sometimes our schedules align, and I get to take Alma to McDonald's, right? And Alma spends a lot of time chatting me up uh, about all the things that are going on in her day and her week and her life, what's going on with her siblings. She shares her secrets with me in her car seat in the back of my car. We drive up to McDonald's, and, and, and one day we went, uh, and we're ordering food. And I said, Alma, what do you want? And she said, I want chocolate milk and pickles. And I said, you know what, Alma? You're going to get what your heart desires. You get chocolate milk and pickles. Now, she did start to eat my food from the meal that I got. But that's okay, because I love hanging with Alma. And we continue to share stories. I'll go back to her house with her uh, and, and hang out. We'll play with dinosaurs. That's one of her big things. She loves unicorns. And we'll just sit and talk and chat and sit and talk and chat. We'll go outside and play. But there comes a moment, maybe around 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, where I've had all the Alma I can get. Right? And I get ready to just sort of hand her back to her parents so that I can go on maybe back to the adult world where people eat more than chocolate milk and pickles and talk about more than dinosaurs and unicorns, right? And I think sometimes I tend to think God is like that, where we have our moments, where we can hang out, and he can listen to my problems, and he can listen to my fears and my anxieties, and we can talk about my dreams and my wonders and my hopes. But there comes a time where I believe, well, I'm kind of just ready to give Abram back, right? so that I can go on and do the things that I have to do. But the psalmist says that is not the case with God. Though he sits high, though he has the world to be concerned about, he looks low, and his eyes are always on us like a watchful father. And he's not thrown off by our neediness or whatever problems we feel like we may bring. As a matter of fact, any interaction that we have with God is never forced, but it's always initiated by him. And he delights to do it. Again, as as high as he is, where he sits, there is nothing that would force his gaze to heaven or earth except his desire to do it. And the psalmist says that he does. Sitting, Sitting high, he looks low. And it gets better because God doesn't just look low, but he gets low. 
Look at what starts to happen in the last three verses, starting in verse 7. Sitting high and looking low, he, he, he sees people who are by that society's standards considered the lowest on the earth. And so he sees the poor in the dust. He sees the needy in the ash heap. He sees the barren woman without a family. And because he looks low, he sees their condition. And then he gets low, meeting them personally, wherever they're at. And so it doesn't say that he sent someone to go get the poor or the needy or the barren woman. It says that he himself visits them and immediately starts to elevate them. And so he raises the poor. He lists the needy. He gives to the barren woman a home. But that's not all. He doesn't just look low, he gets low. And he doesn't just get low, he uses his power to transform their situations. Remember, we talked about this concept of God being seated and that speaking to his position and his status and his function. Well, that same Hebrew word used, uh, used for sit is used for all these people who are mentioned here. And so verse 8, he sits them with princes. And in verse 9, he, he, sits, he makes this barren woman to keep home. Same Hebrew word for sit, meaning that he transforms these people's position and status and function. See, where there was instability, now they have stability. Where they were considered lowly, now they're considered key members of society. Where they were formerly only allowed to function in the dust and in the ash heap and for themselves, now they function in the king's palace and as a leader in their home. See, though God is seated above the heavens and the nations, he is far from disinterested in them. He is looking to use his great power to care for his people. Now you say, that's, that's all great for these people in the psalm, but what does that mean for us? Well, I think this means two major things for us. The first thing I think this means for us is that we can pray for what we need. See, because we have a God who cares for us, we can pray, and not just for spiritual things like patience and joy and steadfastness, but even for physical things like provision and community and children. Because this is what God delights to do. See, the first person actually seeing these words is actually Hannah, who we meet back in 1 Samuel. Or, yeah, 1 Samuel. And she was actually a barren woman who saw God's goodness to her firsthand as she prayed over and over for a child. It's actually as she gets Samuel, as she gives birth to Samuel, that she, she prays this prayer. See, God's not bothered by our prayer requests. He's not telling us to look at the things that we have and quit bothering him. He knows the desires of our hearts, and he wants to hear from us and answer our prayers. Jesus says this. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So we can pray for what we need because we have a God who cares. But number two, this also means that we can praise God even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And not just in a transactional nature. You know, one of the phrases that I heard a lot growing up, uh, which, which comes from, uh, which, you know, was true, is when blessing, or excuse me, what was it? When praises go up, blessings come down, right? There's this sort of transactional nature to praise. But we don't have to just praise God in that way. We can praise God in a way that holds fast to the character and the promises of God's. Meaning because he is great. And because, he's care, we, he, because he cares, we can have full confidence that he will work on our behalf. And we can praise him now for what we know he will do. But what gives us the, 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 the confidence to praise God in this way? You know, there may be some of you asking 
does God really do this type of thing? Or is this just sort of hyperbole? Is this just like a cool poem that we find in the Psalms to give us hope? Or maybe others of you may be saying, well, God does do this sort of thing, but will he do it for me? Well, we, when we consider the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, I think we see the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm. Listen to how Paul describes who Jesus is and what he's done for you and I. This comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8. through 8. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus, who is God come to us, could have just sat high and, and looked low. He could have sat high and not come near to us. But he didn't just sit high, he looked low. And he didn't just look low, he came low. And he didn't just come low, he became the lowest of us by dying the lowliest of death so that he might transform our lives at the cost of his own. That's who Jesus is to us. That is the, is the confidence of God that we can have, that he will and has already acted on our behalf. You see, what's true of us as we put our trust in Christ is that our position goes from one of instability to sedentary. See, before Christ, we are those who are trying to walk the tightrope of life, trying to balance our sin and rebellion on one side with enough good deeds on the other side to feel right with God. But because of Christ, we can have the assurance of justification. Our status goes from an enemy of God to a child of God. See, formerly we deserved his wrath and judgment, but now he declares us a son or a daughter. And we have an inheritance that includes a share in God's eternal kingdom. And our function goes from being objects of God's wrath to fellow workers in the redemption of this world. Who is like the Lord our God? Again, this is so unique to the God of the Bible. He's not a God who asks you to hide or get rid of your neediness. He's a God who is high enough, who is, who, who's, who's able to not be bothered by the things that go on below him, and yet he chooses to engage it with all his being. He's a God who stepped out of heaven and come to see our situation with his own eyes, touch it with his own hands, listen to it with his own ears, and do something about it at no cost to us. There is no God like our God. Can you understand now why the psalmist begins and ends this psalm with a command to praise the Lord? Because, I mean, what other response is there? As we dwell on this reality over and over and we see it at work as God continues to redeem us, then we get the proper understanding of God's greatness and his care. And the more we have the proper understanding, the more we can produce the proper response of praise that he calls us to. And that leads me to my last point, our proper response. Well, again, the proper response to God's greatness and his care is to praise him. But I really want to look at what this looks like practically. And what I want to suggest is that praising God together looks like constantly retelling and reliving the story of God's greatness and his care for us. And I want to look at a couple examples to see this in play. Again, what, God's, what our proper response is is praise. And what praise among us looks like is constantly retelling and reliving the story of God's greatness and his care for us. Now, how, how would the Israelites have done it back in their days? Well, actually, this psalm, Psalm 113, is, part, is the beginning to the Hallel Psalms. 
And the Hallel Psalms is a group of psalms from 113 to 118 that the Israelites would have been reciting to one another during the time of Passover. And so during that time, they would have been sitting around tables, retelling and reliving the story of God, delivering their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. They would have been sitting around a table saying to each other, do you remember the story of the Exodus when we saw God's greatness and his care? They would have been saying, do you remember when we were formerly slaves in Egypt and God sent this stutterer Moses and his brother Aaron to come and deliver us? Do you remember when they said to Pharaoh, let my people go? And Pharaoh made us make more bricks with less straw. Do you remember as we were, God sent Moses and Aaron over and over again to, to, to send plagues on the people? Do you remember when they had frogs and we didn't? Do you remember when locusts came and devoured their fields and didn't devour our fields? Do you remember when it was so dark that they couldn't see each other in Egypt and yet on our side in Goshen it was light and day? Do you remember when God called us to slaughter the Passover lamb and to put the lamb of the blood above our doorposts? And we heard a great cry that night. And it was the cry of the people of Egypt mourning the loss of their firstborn sons. But we saw our sons before us because we obeyed the Lord. Do you remember the story of God's greatness and his care for us in Egypt? And they wouldn't have just been retelling the story of God's greatness and his care for them, but they would have been sitting around a dinner table eating the same meal that their ancestors ate as they waited for God's deliverance. So they're not just retelling, but they're also reliving. And in the retelling and in the reliving of that story, they would have had to ask each other the same central question to the psalm, which is, who is like the Lord, our God? Maybe you remember the story of Jesus and the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. It's a story of these two disciples who are walking after the crucifixion of Jesus away from Jerusalem. And by then, Jesus had been resurrected. And he goes over to these two disciples who are visibly sad. And he says, basically, hey, why are you guys sad? <laughs> and they, I think it's a pretty incredulous question they ask them. They say, are you the only one who hasn't heard about the things that have just happened here in Jerusalem? But then Jesus turns it back to them. And he says, didn't you know that these things were supposed to happen to me? And it says that starting with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus starts to interpret to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And again, what a, what a Bible study that must have been for these two dudes on the road to Emmaus. I mean, you all have me up here to sort of stutter through what the scriptures say. You know, we have each other, but imagine Jesus breaking open the scriptures and, and describing all these things concerning himself. And I don't know what that conversation was like, but I imagine, I imagine it sounded something like this. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, on the worst day in the history of the world, when sin enters it, do you remember the promise of salvation that even then God told Adam and Eve that there would come a time where there would be a seed to crush the serpent's head? Do you remember when God called Abram from his family and told him to go to a land that he would show him, that he would give him a promised son, that even when Abraham and Sarah's bodies were all but dead, God gave them the son of the promise? Do you remember when Moses came and he delivered the people and he was such a great prophet, but then even he too died. And, and, and right before he died, God told the people, he said, don't worry, I will raise for you a prophet like Moses to come and lead my people. Do you remember that sad period of, in Israel? In the book of Judges, where they keep screwing up over and over again, but God continues to raise judges to come and deliver and save his people. 
Do you remember how that culminates in, in King David as he comes? And he is a good king. And he does come and deliver his people. He does come and rule righteously, but even he too dies. Do you remember God's promise to him, though, that there would never cease to be a descendant on his throne? Do you remember as the prophets come and, and, and they're trying to lead God's people, but they continue to be led astray? Do you remember even in the exile, the prophets prophesying, saying that there will come a time where God himself will lead his people? Do you remember as they kept prophesying, this time is coming, this time is coming. For 400 years, things go silent, and then this man Jesus shows up. And he doesn't say a time is coming where the kingdom of God will come. He comes saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you remember as he comes and he gathers 12 <laughs> ragtag dudes to himself, and he starts giving away kingdom secrets to fishermen. Do you remember as he came and as he healed, as, he, as we saw God's greatness, as he fed 5,000 on a mountain, as he delivered people uh, uh, from, from demons, as he raised people from the dead? Do you remember his care as he went to the tomb of Lazarus and he wept with his sister Martha and Mary? Do you remember when they put him on trial? They mock him, they beat him, they scorn him. And he doesn't say a word. Do you remember as he died, and he died in such a way that said a Roman, that, that a Roman centurion said, surely this man was the son of God. Can you, can you see the, the greatness and the care that God has had for his people all along? And then it says he doesn't just, he doesn't just tell the story of, of, of all the things concerning himself and Moses and the prophets, but then he says he breaks bread with them, he gives it to them, and immediately their eyes are open and they go... You're Jesus, right? They say to themselves, did, our not, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scripture? You see, in the retelling and in the reliving of this story of God's greatness and care for his people, all of a sudden these disciples' eyes are open and they go from being these sort of sad and dejected men walking away from Jerusalem to they run back to find the disciples and tell them that, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They go from being sad and dejected to praising the name of the Lord with his people. Well, the same thing is true for us. We have to get in the daily habit of retelling and reliving the story of God's care for us. See, it cannot and it should not be strange for, for us who call ourselves Christians in the church to get together and talk about who Jesus is and what he's done for us about his greatness and his care. And, for, and again, what that looks like practically is as you read the Bible, share with others what you're learning. As you pray, share the ways that you see God answering your prayers and changing you in the midst of prayer. As you live life, share the ways that you see God working in your daily life, your own story of God's greatness and his care for you. And the last thing I'll say is we, we, we don't just do this sort of by ourselves in the privacy of our own, uh, our own homes. We have to do this together. Because again, the question is not who is like the Lord my God. The question is who is like the Lord our God. It's a corporate thing. See, in community, we get a greater picture of who God is as we share with one another so we can we share with one another so that together we can praise. See, I, I'm just a 27-year-old dude from Tulsa, Oklahoma, just trying to figure out the world, right? And I know a little bit of who God is, but I need this community even Seacoast, as I'm here today, to tell me who is like the Lord, our God. See, I don't know what it's like to experience God as a woman. And so I need the women of the church to tell me who is like the Lord, our God. 
I forget sometimes what it was like to experience God as a child, and so I need the children of the church to tell me who is like the Lord, our God. I've only worked a ministry job since I've gotten out of college, and so I need you all who go into, into the corporate world, into, the, to, into your homes, into schools, to tell me who is like the Lord, our God, in these spaces. There's so many different perspectives, and I need you to tell me who God is to you, and you need me to tell, me, to tell you who God is for me. And again, not just in the retelling of the story of God, but in the reliving of that story of God's goodness to us too. And so we study the word together. We pray together. We commune. We worship together. Every time that we get together as Christians, this has to be a staple of what we do. Someone needs you, and you need someone else to remind you of the God that you serve. You see, one of the things that would happen on the Sunday mornings when my cousin Tempe got to going is, again, it would quiet down and someone would be trying to transition the service away, and she would sit down and she would say, I thank you. And someone else in the congregation would go, yes, Lord. And she would say, I thank you. And someone else would go, hallelujah. And she would say, I thank you. And someone else would say, amen. And if the person who was transitioning the service from one part to another let it go on long enough, they could just sit there. And the congregation would just sort of bounce this praise off of one another until everybody all together was praising the name of the Lord. See, this is what it looks like to live into this command together. We don't need prompting from a leader. We just need to retell and relive the story of God's goodness, his greatness, and his care together. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of you calling us to praise you, you don't just call us to do that because you demand it, but you call us to do that because you are good, because you are a God who is worthy of praise. Because in the midst of our praising, we continue to get our perspective reoriented to, to who you truly are. Lord, we thank you for your greatness. We thank you for the ways that you sit high and you are sovereign over all things. We thank you that even in the midst of our own personal and internal worlds uh, that can crumble at times, Lord, you are still seated high. There's nothing that can, that can pull you down off of your throne. And yet you care for us, Lord. And yet you don't just sit on that throne and, and just sort of dictate to us and send other things and people our way, but you yourself come to us. You place your spirit on the inside of us. You dwell in the midst of your people. And you work, Lord. You transform our situations. You save us. You take us from our rebellion and make us uh, uh, your children. And then you continue to give good gifts to us, even after... Uh, we come into this family. So we thank you, Lord, for just the story of your greatness and your care that's been uh, running throughout time. And we thank you for the story of your greatness and care that's been running in the midst of our lives. Help us to remember these things. Help us to rehearse these things in the midst of our congregations. And help us to return to you lives of praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.